Welcome back to How AI Built This, um, the podcast dedicated to data storytelling. As always, we're sponsored by technology recruitment experts, Cathcart Associates, so huge thank you to them. Today on the show, we have Paul Van Loon, um, who's the head of analytics at Forecast, a boutique data consultancy uh, with an office in Edinburgh, and I'll let Paul tell you more about them shortly. But welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks very much for having me, Lee. I'm really excited to, to talk to you. Nice. Uh, it's the first podcast in a while, so hopefully I won't be too rusty. So um, I think we always start uh, at the kind of education piece, and everyone that listens will be bored of me saying this, but I think I like doing it the most because uh, nobody's come from the same background, and you are uh, ringing true to that today. Uh, so you did a liberal arts and science degree in the Netherlands, right? Yeah, that's right. That sounds it's, like um... a perfect opportunity to be a data scientist. <laughs> Yeah, actually, my wife always makes fun of me having a Bachelor of Arts. I don't have a Bachelor of Science, so I'm I'm, I'm not a scientist in, in the slightest, but I refer to myself sometimes as a data scientist. But yeah, it's a it's a uh, like an American style liberal arts college. It's actually the first in the Netherlands to do that type of teaching. So I mean, the idea is really that you're you're in a class with no more than 25 people. I did not have lectures like people would typically have lectures, like a Maths 101 with 200 other people. It's all 25 heads in a classroom, very much focused on um, essay writing, presentation skills, aside from the fact that I, I did politics and I did some biology and I did philosophy, along with the economics and stats and maths that I guess are more relevant to what I do now. But I wouldn't change it for the world. Like doing the law, like fascinating. Nice. Um, also, I think we've just stumbled across a new job title, which I would like everyone to uh, implement from right now as a data artist. That sounds much better than a data scientist. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely don't want to be coining that one. It's just one more, isn't it? <laughs> head head of data artistry, Paul Van Loon. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so from the Netherlands, you moved to sunny St. Andrews in Scotland, and you did a master's in applied stats and data mining, right? So yeah. why, I suppose why that course, given that it would probably be very different to what you were doing before, both in teaching style and content, but also why uh, why Scotland? Well, there's a few things that are probably quite interesting that a like a liberal arts degree, I only did three stats courses, right? I did three stats courses, stats one, stats two, and stats three, and like I did one maths course and I got got a C. Like it's, I just liked like I, I liked statistics because I I liked finding things out. I thought that was the way to finding things out, as in like you know I can prove that two groups are different kind of thing. That's what I really liked about it. Like I I wanted to study abroad, um, just as a I wanted to go outside of the Netherlands just to experience something else. And English speaking countries, UK is close by. Education system I thought was. It's good enough. So it was an obvious choice. And I applied to a couple of places and um, all in the, like all, all for stats, MSc in stats, got accepted at a few places, but decided to go to St. Andrews, probably because it was quite an applied course, at least from the syllabus online at the time, I could work out that it was heavily focused on like actually writing things, like writing the code for that. So um, I think at the time there was also like the, uh, stats course at London School of Economics, for instance, which, by the way, I, I could never afford to go there. So it was nice to be accepted, but couldn't afford to go there. But that was much more do the maths kind of on paper stats kind of course. And that's just not me. Like, that's really not me. I'm not, not good at that, not where my interest lies. So St. Andrew's course was absolutely great in, I mean, every possible way. Maybe aside from the fact that all the stat statisticians there are marine biologists, so all your projects are around 
whale sightings and bird populations, that kind of stuff. But oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Um, you get taught in the, 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 they call it the cream. It's like the observatory, the old observatory. It's really weird. Um, but oh, yeah, nice. I had a great time. Did you like, uh, did you like the experience of moving to Scotland as well? Was it, was it pretty easy being from the Netherlands or was it a total culture shock? Well, the funny thing is that the liberal arts college that I was at was in a, in a small place called Middleburg. So I went from a, a very small place to a very small place. So I never really experienced that massive city uni type experience that made made that a bit easier. But I mean, Scotland's great. I mean, I'm, I'm still here. So <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we've managed to keep on to you. So yeah, so you decided obviously to stay in Scotland, like you said, um, but you went to uh, Edinburgh to do a PhD um, actuarial maths and stats uh, at Harriet yeah. Watt. I think we've had this discussion on the podcast before, but like kind of actuarial maths, like actuaries are, are probably the kind of like first data scientists, right? So they're the kind of people that have been using statistics, like numbers to give people insight essentially so how how did you decide on kind of that as a phd and another question we always ask in the show is like what was the phd experience like for you was it something you would do again for example or could you not wait to get finished well i i before i started my phd after i graduated in st andrews i i worked for like a year and a half in in london doing like econometrics type work like uh, traditional mixed marketing modeling so at the time it was quite, I mean, you're a junior analyst, so the type of work you get to do is quite different from, from doing that sort of work now, for instance. I would love for forecasts to get into that space or win work in that space. Whereas at the time, I was just a guy formatting Excel sheets and input data, which is another topic of discussion. Like, I, I thought that was normal. Like, graduates that I interview now, they want to do deep learning on day one kind of thing. I was formatting Excel sheets. Like, and that, that was my job. I was told to be formatting in, input data. But anyway... I felt after working for a year and a half in in that space, I even by then it was getting kind of routine. I wanted to do more learning. I thought I'm not done doing the traditional learning stuff, and I and I want to do a want to do a PhD. I've always had an interest in in finance as a a broad field. I I did mostly economics and finance courses during my liberal arts degree, and had what is a, an excellent university for actuarial math. So. Um, a, a sponsored position came up, so it was sponsored by industry, uh, which meant there was funding attached to it. So I didn't have to apply separately for funding and the course itself. It also meant it came with a topic. But yeah, I, I, I decided to do that. And again, don't don't regret it. But we can talk more about the PhD because I understand it's a, it's a topic in data science. Like people have PhDs and do I do one or do I not one? And I, I definitely have an opinion on that. But it's, it's yeah, personal. Right. Let's get to that when uh, we talk about building a team, because I actually had an interesting discussion with it uh, with a guy last week on that. So, um, no, that would be interesting. Uh, was there any desire, kind of, once you finished the PhD, to kind of go further than that and end up kind of going down the academic track and, uh, and publishing papers and essentially becoming like a, a kind of lecturer? Then, yeah, like staying in that world. No, I, I don't think there was the attraction at, at any point really to do that. It's definitely the the teaching aspect of it is is not for me. I, I don't particularly enjoy it. Um, even the tutorials that we had to kind of supervise the computer labs and stuff, n- not really for me. And I think apart from the the research might be very interesting. Like there's fascinating topics to research, and especially in actuarial science, it's it can be extremely practical as well if you want it to be. Which would have been nice, but I was never really tempted. I mean, it's yeah. also a cut. It's also a cutthroat world. 
like academics. Like I, you know, even if you're good enough to do a postdoc, which most people, you know, even if they wanted to, there's, you know, there's another funnel, right? For from PhD to postdoc, you don't know where you're going to end up. Like you need to apply everywhere for positions. You might end up for three years in Bolivia to then do two years in Poland to then finally be like, you know, accepted for like a junior lecturer position somewhere at the university more permanently. So even, I mean, they didn't really come into consideration at the time, but yeah, now thinking back, like, I, yeah, definitely made the right choice. Yeah, it's a lot of moving around, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Once you finished the PhD, you went straight to Colliers, right? Colliers International. So they're a massive real estate brand. But did you join them straight away as a director of analytics? I did. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the slightly unusual thing there is that, and we can talk more about this, is I, I like to think that I, I really made the most of my PhD, the way I, I got my PhD, but I, I probably spend more time doing other things than the PhD. So um, I, I did some contractor work. Um, but the main thing I did is I, I developed some algorithms in my spare time um, together with a friend of mine in, in the Netherlands who was working on his, his dissertation at the time. He needed some help and it kind of grew into like a, a residential valuation engine, just like you can put in your address in Zoopla and you get a valuation like that's actually being used. So we, we got hold of some data and it started out as just doing something different, like outside of your regular PhD. And yeah, that was quite successful and started to look for commercial applications. And uh, one of my friends worked at Colliers and they were looking to value a particular residential portfolio as part of an acquisition. He said, oh, okay, you know, just run it through your model for fun and like, see what comes out and we can compare against what, what we would do here. And one thing led to another, and that's how I ended up working for Colliers because they were they were very interested in using that technology to extend their existing residential valuations team. So Colliers is extremely diverse. They do property management, typical buying and leasing, but they also have a large valuation department for commercial and residential real estate. Um, they were keen to to bring me in to to help develop that into a proper product that they can use internally. Um, but also externally. So that's that's why I joined at probably a more senior level than you would typically join. Um, so we had a, a very small team build out the product and then sell that product internally and externally. Nice. That sounds amazing. So that's like a, it's a really good kind of like story for people as well. Like if you like what you're doing and kind of play around with things in your own time that you find interesting, like you can use them to help you get jobs. So it's one of the big things we talk to people all the time is like, how do I stand out as a data scientist in today's kind of crowded out market? And it's like little things like that, that you can show people, or if you're passionate about something that's maybe not inside your current day job or whatever it might be, it can really like, yeah. it can really help you stand out. And I don't mean that you have to go and work on your own thing all day, every day, because people have family and other commitments, but yeah. like if you genuinely love it and you like tinkering around with stuff, like you can use that to your advantage. I would say, especially if you're on the more junior end of the of the career ladder, just tinkering at night, and it, it probably does take commitment, right? But just tinkering at night is probably the best way to learn new technologies. And the good thing is that as long as you're comfortable that it doesn't need to lead to anything, like you don't need to come to some grand conclusion, you don't need to like roll into a job at, at Colliers at the end of it, like doing that work itself is massively important. It gives you something to talk about in an interview as well. Like I really appreciate it if people that interview with us have something to talk about. 
you know, beyond the, like, I did a Titanic Kaggle data, whatever. I'm not really interested in that. Yeah, I think it's good if you could have someone, and again, this isn't like a catch-all, like, one-size-fits-all type solution, but I think when you're speaking to someone that has, like, they've identified a problem potentially that they wanted to solve, and they have just played around with it, and maybe they haven't got to the conclusion yet, or maybe their first approach was wrong, but if they can talk to you a little bit about it, show you a little bit of the kind of like thought process and the coding behind it and what they were trying to achieve. Like it can just like, it can spark conversations and it can help, it can help it become something less of an interview and more of a discussion, which I think again, can only really help the person at the end of it. Yeah. Um, it also means you do much more than just download some data and generate some insight. You're, you're actually involved in, well, not even generating the solution. You're part of generating the problem, right? You're trying to see your problem first. So, yeah, massively. Like I, I don't really know what my career post PhD would have looked like if I hadn't gotten the luck, right? Because I think it's it's probably my well done poll for doing that. But there's a massive amount of luck involved in in it working out the way it did. So if that hadn't happened, I, I don't know what job I would have taken after Colliers. Oh, yeah, sorry, well, after, after my PhD. One of my uh, kind of favorite put on the wall kind of inspirational but sick in your mouth quotes is uh, I think it's luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And that that's like, that that's a really good example of it. Like you had something you were doing because you liked doing it and the opportunity kind of sparked up and you ended up doing something pretty cool with it. So like, yeah, I think it's just like you said earlier, don't go into it saying I'm going to solve this problem and then become the director of X. Like you're, you probably won't, but it gives you, kind of a chance um what was it like for you having done a kind of junior analyst position like you said format in excel input data and then going back to do a phd to then working for a pretty massive company and essentially yeah. essentially becoming like a decision maker so you were like deciding how data was working for a pretty big team or big yeah, company was, rather, team. i mean I, th- I think i was lucky that during my phd i got the opportunity to do a lot of internship type work and it's definitely not the same as working but just even if it's for two months, I worked at my industry sponsor and I did three months at Moody's just working in different teams, meeting new people, seeing all of that. I, it didn't feel like it was such a big deal at the time. I mean, my, my direct report was the CEO and I wasn't really making so many decisions other than like the, the product design type decisions. It was a small team of three people, but you end up trying to sell this to banks. Like you're in a room with old gray people who... You know, they, they do their chat first around the golf course, that kind of stuff. But then you're you're sat there trying to sell something that is quite big, as in, you know, we'll we'll do your residential mortgage book, we'll do the valuations every month, and then it's gonna run into so much so many pounds. So I now looking back, that's probably the role where I matured very quickly because you're you're thrown in the deep end and um, definitely something I, I enjoy just having to figure it out. But I felt quite comfortable on the technology side, the product, because I'd been working on that for for three years. So I felt quite comfortable there. And I knew I was kind of, I knew what I was doing. Um, yeah, it was, it was a shock um, to be like going out places with, with senior people from Colliers. Yeah, that's probably one of the things that we've got a couple of clients who kind of similarly to forecast, but they'll do a lot of work like with their customers and quite often it'll be within customer teams as well. Um, One of the big things we kind of talk quite a lot about to candidates is like you need to be able to show or at least show kind of an interest in that human customer side, not just the really, really 
cool analytics piece. Like you need to be able to sit in a boardroom, for example, and tell someone like me who is not technical whatsoever why you've picked that solution, like what the data was and what the outcome was um, and why that is a good thing. Because it's obviously, it's all well and good building a really complex model, but if your customers aren't understanding it or you're not bringing them much value at the end of it, it's kind of pointless, right? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is exactly where kind of forecast operates, right? I mean, we, we don't operate at the McKinsey level where the partner knows board level people. We're probably more like implementing stuff. So rather than a PowerPoint slide, we'll, we'll actually build some technology for you and with you. It was very important, even from a recruitment perspective, it's, you know, personality first, like technology second kind of thing. Um, yeah. Nice. Um, so yeah, it brings us quite nicely actually to, I think pretty much two years ago, right? So it was like November-ish um, yeah, that's 2018. Right. Uh, you moved to Forecast. So before we go into too much detail uh, about that, why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of who Forecast are and also I suppose why you decided to, to make the jump to them? Yeah, I'll, I'll start there. I think my my reason for leaving uh, Colliers was that when, when I left, I was at college for two and a half years. By the time I left, well, the product I bu- the product I brought with me initially, like the, the valuation, and it was very raw. We managed to build that out into an internal product that the internal valuation team used, and we had some interest from outside of colleagues to use that. But when that was built, I kind of felt like it, w- it was done. Like I was ready to do more data analytics as in like a, a, a broader remit rather than just a like a residential valuation engine. And there are masses of opportunities in in retail and commercial lending. And there's there's plenty of data. Um but it didn't really go that way. Like it's either a traditional firm resistance kind of thing, trying to change it from the inside. I just didn't get the traction I wanted with other teams, like with the property management team, and they were looking into blockchain and into servicing, and it just didn't really happen. So I felt like well, I don't really want to be the guy who's now maintaining this piece of software because incremental improvements are, like, they don't really matter. It's another thing, like whether your model was 8% or 8.1% makes no real-life difference kind of thing. So you're just maintaining. There wasn't a lot of room to grow. So failing the internal opportunities for a slightly broader remit i I just thought it might be time to do something something else nice and then yeah why why forecast then well i mean typical i i I had it in my head that i was maybe up for a change or i thought well maybe by the end of the year i want to want to be changing but i wasn't really looking and typically and then you know, my LinkedIn feed's full of recruiters. So you click on a couple of things and before you know it, you're on the phone to someone. And <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, for- Forecast was, I mean, I was intrigued by Forecast website where Forecast said they do financial modeling. And I thought, well, I did, I did a PhD in financial maths, basically. Like, what, what do you mean financial modeling? That can mean anything, right? Um, until I checked out some of the profiles, like the team members, like who was working there. And I noticed they all had their CFA, like Chartered Financial Analyst qualification, so, which, which I do too. And I thought, well, it gives me a bit more of a sense of what these guys are up to. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll take their call because I don't really know what they necessarily need like a, a data person for. Um, when I spoke to the recruiter and to Neil, they explained how forecast. Very like, small business, like there's five people at the time in Edinburgh. Um, 
we're kind of diversifying, we're quite naturally diversifying from the financial modeling into the data analytics. And they were looking for, for someone to help build that part of the business for them next to the financial modeling. And I, I thought that, just, that was just exciting to do, like similar to the choice of like post PhD to kind of roll into a job at Collier's, which I thought at the time was a, the risky thing to do. I thought this was the risky thing to do again because I didn't really know exactly what was going to be coming coming my way. But I just like the idea of um, like the typical consultancy parts, like different clients, different questions, different industries. But um, yeah, a bit of the uncertainty of not knowing exactly what I would get myself into. Nice. I like that. Um, and pretty much in the last well, 18 months, so almost the whole time you've been there, there's been some pretty like, pretty impressive growth, right? Yeah, we now have 11 data consultants in Edinburgh. I must say that there's also a team in Sydney. Uh, Forecast Australia was founded in 2016 as nice. purely as a modeling business. Um, but now there's two data analysts there as well. And they very much go the direction of the, the data engineering type piece or the infrastructure more yeah. and more. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really good. Nice. Um, and I think you told me before we did the, the show um, that you pretty much moved office before lockdown because everything was going so well, right? <laughs> and, and then you got like two weeks in it and now it's just been kind of sitting empty. Yeah, just uh, just at the start of March, we got the the keys to our new office near near Fountain Bridge. Yeah, big office just to because we've been really outgrown at our office. Like it was just so because we're on the phone all the time. Like all all of our people are are client facing, so everyone's probably in touch with their clients every day. Like if they're not on site, they're in the office. So there's a lot of calling going on, um, yeah. and we're just in too small a space. So we 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 got a much much bigger space, but. Um, yeah, it's been been left unused, so it's it's still got no meeting rooms and that kind of thing. Um, it'll be a while, I think, before we're back in there properly. Yeah, no, I think so. But what's uh, so what's the kind of work from home COVID experience been like for for you and the team? Is it has it been quite seamless, or because, like you said, lots of calls, lots of client site visits, lots of lots of contact with customers, has it been more difficult, maybe? Well, I would, I would say in some ways it has been more difficult. I think at Forecast, we, we like to think that we do our best work with the client alongside the client. We also often work, like you would say, like with an internal team delivering something together. So we like to be on client side when it's possible. It's probably fair to say that we've been able to successfully deliver the work. Like I don't think there's any client who would say, well, that's really subpar work because I we couldn't get it done. But it's not quite the same as being on like I don't know it, it it's different like I, I would much prefer to go back to a more like, when possible right I, I think what we're doing is right but I think I would much prefer the team to be delivering alongside alongside clients winning new work has been more difficult because the way the way we win work is by doing a good job and being referred and talking to someone here and meeting here and then these are like kind of naturally words word of mouth kind of business that's more difficult simply because you're you're not meeting up with people anymore face to face so that's been uh, that's been more difficult but delivering the actual work has been fine i think just like everyone we adapted fairly quickly clients had to as well so you're all kind of in the same boat yeah, no, I remember um, a conversation I had with one of the people that works for um, kind of one of the big four, and he was looking for 
I was like a kind of principal data consultant type person, but he said one of the real key parts of the role, which I kind of never really thought about before, was that when you're on a client site and you're delivering a project, a big part of that person's job as like a principal or a senior is like keeping their ears to the ground. And like when you're talking to people in between meetings or when you bump into somebody in the hallway, like you're kind of looking for little opportunities here and there or to get introduced to the next person in the next team. Because obviously when you're on site at like, I don't know, a huge bank, you might be working with like 150 people, but the organization's got 20,000 people. So like there's other opportunities in there. You just need to kind of get in, which obviously when you're doing a very specific like Zoom or Teams call, like yeah. there's not there's not that kind of like cross collaboration, right? No, there's a barrier to that. Like if you think of, of some of our, some of our biggest clients who are, well, mostly large corporates is you would literally walk around a building you would just literally walk around a building and then with someone and you get introduced and you say hi and that's how it kind of goes. Or maybe you've not worked with a client for a couple of months and you just go see him. There's a barrier to, hey, how's it going on emails? Shall I book in a Zoom slot for 30 minutes this time? No, I can't make it. Let's do it. It's, it's not the same. Yeah, when you bump into someone and they happen to be like, on their way for a coffee or like in the lift, like th- without you sounding weird, they can't get away from you <laughs> But on a, on a zoom call or on a telephone call. Like people can be, people, I mean, I always tell people like, Oh yeah, I'm like really busy today. But like if, I'm, if they were just coming into the office, I would find 15 minutes. Like you would just find it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm guessing based on that conversation, you're not going to be on the kind of LinkedIn crusade of remote working forever and ever. It will be very much kind of, if we can get back to, being on customer site, that'd be great. I mean, we've all been saying it's like it's doesn't really matter if we can go back to the office. It's really we need everyone else to be back in the office. It's kind of like a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? It's just you know, there's in some ways you could say in terms of delivering work to clients or or winning new work, there's there's no point in twenty of us now sitting in the office in Edinburgh and just not going out. And um, I think there's an element of like team development and all that kind of stuff where I think it's it's also not sustainable to do this over too long a period. There's now three people that we've onboarded completely remotely. Um, that's, that's tough, right? Yeah. Uh, two of the team members we hired in, in December and then notice period kind of stuff, they started 1st of March, which is technically was just on the edge, isn't it? Um, and someone started today. <laughs> yeah, that, that's been very different too. But I really think for more junior team members or even the junior in terms of forecast tenure to develop themselves is, is, is really quite different. Like I, you need to be working alongside other people. Like it's just very different. Like I think we've tried to make the most of, of training. Like how do you do that? Usually we would have like a Friday session on this. So you go and speak to someone about something else. Like it's, again, you need to make that much more formal now. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's I, why I don't know I'm... if I like it. Yeah, that's why I, I don't know who I was talking to. Maybe it was actually with you before. Like people like in my job, like specifically the level that I'm at in the company, I can work from home. Like I can work from home and I can speak to clients. I can I can do most of my job. It's the kind of more junior people that we've recently hired that I feel sorry for because loads of the learnings that I got in the first few months was just listening to the senior people. Like you would bump into them or they'd be on a call or they you would take them along on a client meeting or like just like these little things where they don't actually have to do anything. They're just kind of soaking it up. But now they're kind of trying to do a lot of that remotely. Like it's not, they're not getting the same 
I don't know, they're not getting the same kind of like immersion that you would being in the office. And so I think a lot of people are clambering for like work from home forever. Everyone should do whatever they want. They're probably more senior people. I don't think there's going to be a huge amount of junior people that really want to work forever with nobody else. Yeah, yeah I don't think there's anyone who would say they doesn't they don't like some of the flexibility that come with working from home. Like everyone does. But I, I fully agree with you. I don't think it's sustainable for junior people to to work from home for for all too long. And um, aside from the learning, I realized a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, maybe naive of me to only realize this, like what is it, eight, eight months in, that I I speak to everyone in the team probably almost daily, or at least I speak to everyone because it's kind of my job to check in and make sure everyone's doing okay. But I realized for, for most people, that's not the case. They probably work with the one or, or, or two colleagues that are on the same project and they work quite intensively together, but they don't really speak to as many, kind of as many unique people, if you will, I mean, I hadn't realized that. Um, yeah, that's something I've found. So since I've started working in the office, like we've got a couple of members of the team that do your job. So they will speak to all of the team almost daily, whereas I'll maybe speak to like one or two of the team a few times a week. Um, and every so often, the kind of senior team will get together and talk about stuff. But I could probably go a full week without doing a video call with one of the team and it, like nothing bad would happen but it just it makes it, it's a very different job to when I'm in the office where I can just kind of hear what's going on give some advice here and there kind of jump in yeah. like people can ask me stuff like it, that all that becomes a little bit more difficult so like I think if you're doing a job where communication with team members isn't like paramount then you can get away with quite a lot from home. Like it can be a lot more useful because you get quiet time, you get to focus. But in a job like where you're a consultant facing off the customers or in a job like our job where a lot of it is kind of like the kind of camaraderie of it and everything like that, like it can be a lot more difficult. But yeah, we're all kind of still learning, right? One of the, at Forecast, we have the very much the, the analytics people and the financial modeling people who I think we would probably say that those two worlds align quite often and they do because, I mean, the analytics uh, business for forecast grew out of the financial modeling, but oftentimes they're also just separate. Like they're quite different projects we can be working on. There are projects where there's like a, a cross team effort, but it's probably it happens more and more, but it's probably still the exception. For me, it's quite important that the analytics people learn from the financial modeling people, if you like, because they they tend to be, slightly older, have more work experience, are more commercially minded, um, whereas the analytics team are more technical. Um, even if we hire for consultancy skills, they're going to be more technical. They're also more junior in age. So I really think my team can learn a lot from the other team. And even though within the analytics team, we've, we've done quite well in organizing training sessions as as spontaneously as we can. <laughs> You, you don't really walk past the like one of the financial modeling guys. You, you, like it's more difficult to to get that conversation going because they, you know, you don't naturally meet. It's not like we can do like a joint training session or like you know you would just speak to people. That's how you would learn. So especially for them, I think it's um, it's difficult to pick that up. Yeah, no, I think so. And I suppose kind of taking COVID out of it a little bit, but maybe not, depending on how how we get on. But what do you think, kind of? I suppose you're learning from colliers, but probably more so in the last two years at Forecast. What do you see as kind of like the, the top tips to, to building a really good data kind of analytics team? Like what are the kind of 
characteristics you would look for, but also any little things you've learned just from building a team? Like what, what would you recommend others? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is like at Forecast, we def- we're definitely learning as we go. Like I don't think I'm an expert at all in building a data team, right? I think we've just we've just grown one head at a time based on client demands. Like it, it's not as if we sat down with a piece of paper and said, well, this is what we'd like our team to look like. Of course, we're also not an internal, like we're not a client side team. We're a team of consultants. So it's a bit different if you were working at a large bank, for instance, having to build a team where you need different skill sets, et cetera. But We've just grown one head at a time, Liam. And it's it's really now, yeah, now where we start to think of people's skill sets being different from each other. We would always say in interviews, like first cab of the rank, like whatever project is there, whoever is free is doing that project. And that's still very much the mentality. Like everyone should be up for that. Everyone should be able to do everything. We'll throw you in the deep end with appropriate help. Um, but you should be, you know, you're a general data consultant. You, you, you know, internally we don't use data scientist and data engineer or what did you have data artist? We, we're just <laughs> consultants, right? You're, you're, a, you're an analyst. You're, you're a senior analyst kind of thing to, to make clear to the outside world, like we're, we're just helping you out, and we just tend to have some, some data related toolkits that we can, can employ to help you out. Yeah, I, I don't know specifically, Liam. I think. If, if you're hiring multiple people, just just a recognition of a very diverse skill set that includes engineering, software development, software practices. Like you know, that that's one of the things that I found where we probably didn't do so well at the start, but we probably picked up on that quicker than than some of our clients. That some practices from software engineering and project like project design and maintaining a code base. Like it, it's not all about a CSV file doing your analysis and and getting out of there. So. That's probably one of the learnings we've had internally. Um, but other than that, I would say we're still figuring it out. <laughs> nice. No, I mean, and as, as good as well. I think sometimes people from the outside looking into different companies probably think that everyone's got everything dialed in, and it's just not the case normally. People are kind of learning all the time. And um, one of the conversations I had, so we'll go into the PhD or no PhD in a second, but one of the conversations I had with a guy that I know um, down in Manchester, actually, he said when he's hiring, if someone had a PhD, but no industry experience whatsoever. And he was hiring and the person interviewing next to them had maybe a year or two industry experience with no PhD, but had good experience of like deploying something into production, understanding how that works. He would rather that all day than the kind of like kudos of the PhD because he just felt that it's so much more difficult to actually get something into production than it is to maybe understand the overall kind of theory of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, I I don't think I disagree. I think, I mean, it's all nuanced, right? It's exactly what's your PhD about. Like, are you applying for an extremely specialist role where a PhD might actually almost be a requirement? Like you could be doing some fancy speech analytics at Apple, for instance, like those are edge cases, but in the main, He's probably right. You would definitely value the way I interpret his words might be like you value practical experience a lot more than written papers, for instance. Yeah, in the real world, that's that's definitely true. There's not to say yeah. that I would discourage anyone from doing a PhD, but I think you need to go into that with the right motives and the right mindset of like what what are you looking to get out of your PhD? So some people would say if you if you're not looking to get into ac- academia, why are you doing a PhD at all? I don't think it's that black and white. Um, but yeah, I think you should definitely have a, a very good reason for doing a PhD if your ultimate goal is to to do some type of 
data work. And I think his main point that resonated with me was we've had lots of customers kind of maybe not recently, but maybe kind of a few years ago when data science was obviously such like a, a big boom across everywhere. People saying like, well, we're not going to interview anyone if they've not got a PhD. And it's, if you said to them, well, listen, they've got like a master's in stats and they've been an actuarial like scientist for the last few years at a big like hedge fund or something like that. It's like, wh- Why would you not speak to that person? just because they didn't stay at uni for an extra couple of years. Like we need to take all things into consideration. Yeah. I mean, I don't see a reason why a PhD would necessarily make you any better than you were when you had a master's degree. Like it just means you did four more years of something. And that, that counts for that. Like it's four more or three more, however long it takes you to see a PhD. It's four more years of experience. That I think you, you can't discount, but if you spend those four years doing some very theoretical subject, right? Like, I, I don't know. I can't really think of one appropriate. <laughs> but I mean, you can think of them, right? In mathematics, like there's loads of theoretical PhDs you can do. And if you just go through your PhD, attending the coursework, doing a couple of papers and conferences, you've probably not added a huge amount of ammunition for your CV. Um, it gives you something to talk about though, but like, it, it might just be Okay, he's a, he's a clever guy and he he knows his maths. Like you know, that's that's probably as much as you take away from a PhD like that. Yeah, and it's a transferable skill for sure, but it's not the same as working like in the company already. Like you don't have that same kind of knowledge base. You just have one part of it. I mean, you said something quite interesting um, that again came up last week with that guy. Um, but you, when you were a junior doing Excel input, like tidying it up, basically. Um, yeah. And the people that you interview now want to be doing deep learning from day one. Like that's the kind of thing where we actually. Well, I would say that maybe like the world has moved on, right? So yeah. it, you can't really compare that. That's more than ten years ago. Where I mean, deep learning maybe was a thing, but no one was doing it. Like there was not an option for me to be doing that. So I yeah. think graduates now are probably better equipped to do some of the actual work. But there is that element for me of they just like hold on a little bit. Like I think maybe universities are also. I mean, there's a bigger debate of whether universities should be preparing you for the job market or not, but it's more of a, yeah. like they, they, they show you um, all these fancy things that are out there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be doing that on your first day or, or let alone ever. Yeah, well, no, I think that that's a good point. And I think where he got to it, so we, we had a bit of a, a kind of lunch and learn session with a data scientist with some of the team to kind of try and explain, uh, kind of like dispel some of the myths around it and actually say like, what is your day day-to-day like what is like what are some of the projects you actually work on as opposed to the things you see in the news and we said some like if we've got a client that says like we need someone that needs like deep learning experience or computer vision experience he was he said to us like well the first question you would ask is like can you tell us why because a lot of the time people write deep learning on job specs and stuff like that because they've, they've it's in the news right it's like it's, it's a it's a pretty fancy interesting part of data science but like, does anyone actually need to have it for that job that you're advertising for? Or is it just something that would kind of be interesting? Um, which is maybe why sometimes when companies are hiring data scientists, there's still a bit of an issue where it's quite easy to shout about the kind of really modern, interesting like use cases, mm. where, where in reality, they're probably still doing some sort of data cleaning and finding the data in the first place in a lot of, in a lot of instances. So it isn't just... Yeah, day one, deep learning, day two, computer vision. Like, it's not like that, really. No, and maybe like, uh, deep learning on a, on a job spec is like if, if, if a company really needed 
experts in deep learning because plenty of companies do like the rules exist like writing experience in deep learning is fairly generic isn't it like what, what do you mean what what frameworks do you use what technologies do you use because that's quite different or what applications are you using because it'll be very different if you work in speech or in, in vision or whatever it may be they're all very different applications so just a blanket deep learning experience probably tells you that they maybe they're just I, I don't know maybe just on the job spec for being on the job spec yeah, no, I mean, the ones that I see that I've not seen many recently, but the ones I used to see quite a lot was just experience of like comma, deep learning, computer vision, NLP, like just basically everything that was quite interesting and new. Um, yeah, as, as a data scientist or machine learning person, whatever, you can probably know about all of those up to some level. Like I, I like to think that I I know a little bit about a lot of things that I can hold an intelligent conversation with anyone around all of these topics for five or 10 minutes. But when yeah. it comes down to the actual doing, I don't think you can be an expert or educated in all of those properly. Like you, I don't think that that's how it works. No. And I think in the job you do, you, you and the team are paid to be like, to know quite a lot so that you'll know, areas of lots of different bits of data and analytics whereas if you're like a true computer vision or speech like nlp speech expert you probably only know that like obviously you'll be able to do other things but your day-to-day job will be really laser focused whereas if you're in a consultancy helping customers do different things the whole kind of point is you can almost be a bit of a chameleon right yeah and but part of it that's what i like about this i, I get to do a lot of different things like i'm we're currently actually working on a an NLP type project. I don't think we would ever sell ourselves to the client and saying like we're experts in this and we'll build you some custom X, Y, Z, whatever they need us because they don't have any experience in house and they trust us to deliver the work and we will. Um, but you're right. Like it's, if, if you work in one of those specialized roles, like that, that's your role. You can't have a, a laundry list of expertises. That's not really how the world works. I think. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think it's definitely got better um, over the last couple of years. But I think there was a bit of that kind of a few years ago where people were guilty of just like shopping list type job specs. And it didn't help maybe more junior people understand the job as well. But I think I think it's getting better. Yeah, I think, I mean, we've definitely learned as well, hiring over 10 people, which has been an experience for us to trying to build that team. Like, well, every hire we sit down and say, well, what are we looking for? Um, and at the start, it was quite straightforward in a sense because it was really just meeting client demand. Now it's getting a bit more tricky where you have an existing skill base and you're trying to find people who complement that, that have skill sets slightly outside of the current. So it's a bit more of a, a puzzle at the moment, but we have to sit down every single time and say, well, what are we going to write for a job spec? And yeah, I definitely don't envy you like as, as recruiters trying to make sense of in in my head i know exactly the person we're looking for um but trying to put that down on paper and even as a candidate try and put yourself down on paper um yeah, it's it's really tricky it's 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 not easy to do that yeah no it's, uh, i think a lot of people try and make recruitment sound like they could use data for example data science techniques to like make it easier but it's so like nuanced and there's there's so much human interaction around it that it's quite hard to like automate 
any part of the process, like maybe initial application type stuff. But when it comes to like full on, like career life changing decisions, like there needs to be the human, human, human to human part. So like that's, that's the hardest part of our job is you're, you're dealing with, dealing with humans. I mean, but one of the things that Neil and I said to each other, maybe, maybe six months in after we'd hired a few people, I think, well, wh- why did we actually hire these team members in the first place? And your reasons for hiring them were not necessarily the reason why they actually all worked out to be really good team members. They're not. Like, they turned out to be different from what they were at the interview. And it yeah. makes me think, well, like, did, because we had a recruitment agency help us, did they do a good job? And I think, well, yeah, it was a painful process. They got us good candidates, but we both didn't really know at the time why they were good. There was something about these candidates that we liked at the time. That's not necessarily why they're so so good now. So it just shows how how difficult the matchmaking process really is. Um, yeah, the, the standard interview type. It's just really difficult to find out what a person's actually about because so, so much of the success you would have at Forecast isn't determined by your technical skill set or previous technical experience, that's almost basically a, a given. Like if you don't have that, we wouldn't see you anyway. So the interview process and getting to know you is about something else. And it's difficult to put your finger on what makes someone do well in the team. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not easy. And that's why the kind of job spec and stuff is so difficult and, and getting a good interview process, interview process, sorry, is, uh, is so key as well. Um, I suppose lastly, just to kind of, to finish up, what does the, the next couple of months of, of 2020, so kind of coming into the end of the year, what does it look like for forecast? And then, and then is next year kind of just building on the success of, of what's just happened? Yeah, I think, um, maybe first of all, I think, We've told everyone that we will probably not expect them back in the office until until March. I think, I mean, that's probably very realistic at this point. We, we told them a while ago, just so everyone can kind of make plans of their own. Over the summer, we had um, people go back to their home countries. We've got quite an international team. So we had people delivering work from uh, from Italy, from Ireland, from Canada, and even from India, which was, that's a time zone difference. That I don't think he wants to do that ever again, but... Um, just to give people a bit of space that we're not pushing the deadline every week based on the new guidelines that are coming out. So hopefully they'll give people a chance to do what they want to do. Nice. Um, but other than that, yeah, very, very much building on from the success. I think more and more we're going into the, well, what I would almost call full service. So rather than do your data science, it's definitely where we started. It's now much more about integrating end-to-end solutions. So this is much more the engineering side of the data science and engineering, which touches on software development, infrastructure type work. So um, yeah, just that general direction of growth. Nice, it's really exciting. And it's great to see a company kind of with a, a presence in Edinburgh doing so well, I suppose generally, but also in this kind of weird time that we're in, like seeing seeing some positive strides and, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see where you guys kind of get to in the next next kind of 12 to 18 months we'll definitely keep in touch and see how it's going and we may get back on next year and see see how it's progressed yeah that'll be fantastic sounds good well thank you very much for joining really do appreciate it it was good to to finally get to chat